0: You're listening to The Leonard Lopate Show on AM 820 and 93.9 WNYC.
1: As the weather warms up, many of us start thinking about making changes, whether it's spring cleaning, taking up running again, or resuming other healthy habits. But... If you've gotten into a creative or professional rut, you might also consider doing a form of spring cleaning for the mind, which is why we have decided to make this week's Please Explain segment all about understanding productivity and creativity. Dr. Srini Pillay is a psychiatrist, brain imaging researcher, and technology innovator. His latest book, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind, it's published by Valentine Books. We're very pleased that it has brought him to our show. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And we also invite our listeners into this conversation. If you have a question about creativity or pro- productivity, give us a call, 212-433-9692. You could also, by the way, write to us on our show page at wmyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. So, Doctor, you're a physician, psychiatrist, executive coach. Is there a connection, a common thread in those various job descriptions?
2: There is. Uh, As as a psychiatrist, you learn different mental models of the way in which people function, uh, what makes them feel happier, what makes them feel sadder, what makes them feel more anxious. Um, As a brain imaging researcher, what you then have is the privilege of looking into their brains to see what correlates. With those behaviors, and as an executive coach, uh, I've pioneered a a field called neurocoaching, where I get to help uh, executives understand how their behaviors connect with their brain function, and then how we can target changes in brain function for them to change their behaviors.
1: And how much can you learn by brain imaging? You're looking at the the brains of people uh, through
2: MRIs. That's correct. So I spent 17 years. Uh, studying the brain, both the structure and the function of the brain, um, in a lab at Harvard. And what what we looked at is the different brain structures so we could see which structures are impacted uh, when people have difficulty making decisions, difficulty making changes. But we also looked at brain blood flow. And from my studies and also the studies of many other people, we are able to discern when brain blood flow is off course and how to change the course of that blood flow to restore it back to what we would call the experimental normal.
1: And if you get that blood flow going
2: in the right direction, then that helps people think more clearly? That's correct. It helps them think more clearly, it helps them feel better, and it also helps them become more creative or more productive if that's what they want. And I think we're still at the early stages of understanding how some of this works, but there's certainly enough information out there to begin to share this so that people can start to take advantage of
1: this. You are right that too many people have
2: unwittingly bought into the cult of focus. Can you talk about that? Sure. You know, so when when we think about mental function, we generally think about focus and we think about effort. Um, In reality, the brain actually occupies 2% of the body's volume. um, And at rest, the brain consumes 20% of the body's energy. Uh, and when you apply effort, it just tax on another 5%. Now, when it is consuming this 20% of energy at rest, uh, one of the main networks that's activated is the unfocused network. And the unfocused network is also called the default mode network or the DMN. Is that and what uh, athletes call being in the zone or artists, some uh,
1: artists call flow?
2: Yes, and I, I, think, I think flow or being in the zone is really uh, a combination of being both focused and unfocused. So if you speak to a, a tennis player like Serena Williams, for example, when she talks about her state of mind, when she has this winning mindset, she says, I've got to be super focused and relaxed, meaning that there's what I would call cognitive rhythm, the ability to move between focus and, and unfocus when you need to.
1: So um, there's another thing you, you, you write about, long-term discounting. How is that related to this?
2: So a lot of times when when we think about things in the short term, we think about that because we're focused on the short term. And as a result, we don't really think about the implications in the long term. So if it comes to how we spend our money or how we're spending our time or how we're constructing our lives, if we're only focused on the here and now, then we're not thinking about the future. And long-term discounting is essentially not taking the longer term into account.
1: So you're saying that... Too much focus might stifle innovation because we're not allowing ourselves
2: to think about the future. That's 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 in part the case. So uh, you know, it's if you think about it a little bit like low beams and high beams. When you have focus, it's actually having the low beams on, and and what we want with unfocus is high beams to be able to get. Uh, you know, a different perspective of what's happening. But when it comes to creativity and innovation, I think one of the things to point out is that this unfocused circuit, one of its main functions is to shuttle around memories and to make new connections. And when you focus, it actually turns the circuit off. So one of the things we need to remember is that if we want to become more creative, We do need to build unfocus into our days in order to turn this creative circuit on, or at least this part of the creative circuit on.
1: Does this suggest that education that emphasizes rote learning, cramming
2: information like medical or law school might be flawed? I think it's flawed if it only focuses on... Uh, on focus. So, you know, for example, uh, when I started my residency at Harvard, I, I was a very hardworking student. I, I wanted to study everything. I did a lot of rote learning. And one of my first points of feedback was from a supervisor who said, Look, we love the fact that you're working so hard and we love the fact that you know as much information as you do. But you're really here to get an education, not just to memorize. And by an education, what we want is someone who's thoughtful, and someone who's able to make connections across different things. And if you don't take more time off, you're not going to have that time to make connections.
1: My guest is Srini Pillay. His book, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind. And we're inviting your calls at... Two one two four three three nine six nine two. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org on Facebook or Twitter, where I handle is at Leonard Lopate. What are social connection circuits, and why do they matter for creativity?
2: Well, in general, if you think about uh, the way in which we work as creatives, you know, I, I was just thinking about uh, the 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 whole uh, motto of your show, which is big truth and And, as a creative, you really need to be connected deeply to yourself and deeply to the subject matter at hand. Now, if you simply focus metaphorically, uh, you essentially engage yourself the way that a fork would pick up information. You pick up all the concrete informations about yourself, like your age and your profession and where you live, things that you know and that are more obvious. But when you unfocus, you actually uh, the brain metaphorically invites a different set of silverware to the table. So all of a sudden, you have a spoon to pick up the delicious melange of flavors of your identity, such as the scent of your grandmother. Or, uh, and then you have chopsticks, which make connections across the brain. And then you have something like a marrow spoon, which digs into all the nooks and crannies of your brain to elicit different kinds of memories. Now, this sense of self it really activates a very powerful sense of presence or a big truth presence. And and what it actually does is the same circuit that is involved in the sense of self is involved in what we call mentalizing or connecting with what others may be thinking or the subject matter at hand. And as creatives, there needs to be this continuous movement between self-focus and other focus. So if you think how an orchestra runs, for example... Any musician has to be very deeply self-connected, but they can't be so self-connected that they're ignoring the other musicians or they're ignoring the conductor. And they have to be able to move between themselves, and their social circuits have to activate so that they can coordinate what they're doing and and actually relate to the audience at the same time. Uh, that's multitasking, so isn't it? It's, it's multitasking all at the same time, and our brains are actually wired to multitask in that way if we can – train these circuits to do these kinds of things.
1: Now, why is it that sometimes we have our best ideas while we're in the shower? Is it because we're in an unfocused
2: situation? Exactly. So, so when you're in the shower, you turn focus off, and so your default mode network comes on, and you get a whole series of new associations and new memories, and as a result, you have a set of new ideas. You write that when you want
1: to be creative, your brain will usually put up
2: a fight That's right. So if you look at studies that actually uh, uh, look at what happens unconsciously when we want to be creative, uh, even though people say they love creativity and they want to be creative, at an unconscious level, our brains actually associate the words creativity with words like vomit and agony, and and part of that is that creativity is an invitation to something that is more uncertain, and when we are uncertain our brain goes into a doom and gloom mode. Seventy-five percent of the time, our brains will mispredict that something bad is going to happen. And so even though on the surface the act of creativity sounds really delightful and wonderful, the reality is that our initial response to it is aversion. And being aware of this can help us fight that.
1: Many people suggest that meditation is a way to uh, get Unfocused in the way you're talking about, but uh, some pretty great thinkers—Leonardo, Darwin, Einstein—probably
2: didn't meditate, and they seem to do all right. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, there's. So, firstly, I think meditation is a is a broad term for a number of different things. You have uh, a focused kinds of meditation, like mindfulness, where you're focusing on the breath, but you also have periods of mindlessness when the mind is wandering, and certainly. When Einstein talks about even his theory of relativity, he talks about it as a musical phenomenon, not as something that, was just, that just came from linear and focused thinking, but something that seemed to creatively emerge. So I think you don't necessarily need to, to actually just be mindful. I think, it, in, it, I think being mindless is helpful as well with this particular kind of mind-wandering or daydreaming because that allows you to make the kinds of connections that leads to discovery.
1: Let's take a call from Andrea from the Bronx. Hi, you're on the air.
0: Hi, I'm, I'm calling because I agree 100% of what the doctor is saying. Um, I've recently done the borden Brilliant challenge, and I find that if I don't look at my phone on a constant basis, then I am able, then, excuse me, if I don't look at my phone on a constant basis, then I'm able to kind of, like, relax a bit, and in doing that, becoming more creative.
1: When, when you're on the subway or and places like when I'm,
0: that? When I'm, when I'm pretty much anywhere, unless I have to look at my phone, and it, it's truly a challenge. Um, but everybody on the subway is staring down at their, at their phone, uh, doing whatever they're doing, playing two dots or looking at Facebook. Um, and they don't give themselves downtime, which is, I think, what the mind really needs. It needs downtime to kind of recharge.
1: Okay. Well, Dr. Pillay, for, for a long time, uh, we didn't, well, for most of our history, we didn't have cell phones. And we, when we rode on the subways, uh, we just sat there quietly and had our downtime and did our daydreaming. Was the world a better place then?
2: Well, I, I think you can make an argument either way about it being better or worse because it's such a big question. But I think if you're asking, does it help to have downtime, I think the answer is yes. And I think if you're asking, as Andrea implies, does this help recharge the brain, it most certainly does. And in fact, most people live their lives with this focus, 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 fatigue kind of mentality rather than optimizing the brain frequently so that unfocus can help the brain recharge. Let's take another call. Aviva from
1: Spring Valley. Hi. You're on the air. Hi. Go ahead. Okay.
3: Okay. So thank you for taking my call. And I'm really enjoying this um, because this gives fuel to my argument my kids have to get off the computer. But um, so my first question is, is I just recently read this study that linked um, intense computer use with the diminished capacity for deeper thinking which includes imagination and you know all kinds of creative thinking. Um, and I'm wondering if this has a correlation to what your guest is speaking about. And my second um, question is, um, I'm going to be taking the GRE soon, and I find actually that um, it's very hard for me to focus, and when I focus, Um, It actually makes it worse. It actually makes my mind wander more. And I'm wondering if uh, your guest has any helpful um, tips or exercises I can practice in order so that I can kind of maintain my focus, but also at the same time have this kind of calming unfocus, which would enable me to complete the test in a kind of relaxed but timely manner.
2: Dr. Pillay? Um, that's a great question, Aviva. Um, so the, the two questions. The first was, uh, does uh, too much focus, a hyper-focus on the computer, lead to a decreased capacity for deeper thinking? And I think a lot of people would be able to argue uh, that that is true for the following reason. The unfocused network is the same network that we need for imagination. And for imagination to be activated... We need to take a break from a, this kind of intense computer activity to activate the imagination networks so so yes, I think the answer to that question is is, is absolutely right that 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 you 're right about the fact that that taking a break from the computer can activate your imagination networks. I think the second piece about, you know, what do you do when you're focusing and it's fine, but then you go into hyper-focus mode and you really can't concentrate, are there some things that you can do? Well, I think the first thing to remember is that most of us spend about 46.9% of our days daydreaming anyway. And Jerome Singer, who has studied this phenomenon since the 1950s, has found that there are at least three different kinds of daydreaming. There's a kind of daydreaming that you're describing that you slip into, which is not helpful. That's like falling off a cliff. Um, And there's also the kind of daydreaming, which is guilty, dysphoric daydreaming, where you just ruminate over something because it's troubling you. But there is a third kind of daydreaming called positive constructive daydreaming. And and there are three things that you can do to initiate this. The first is plan it in your day. So if you're working on your GREs every 45 minutes, plan a 15-minute segment where you will allow your mind to wander. Secondly, during that time, rather than doing nothing, studies show that it is best done with low-key activities, like knitting or gardening. And the third thing is that when you initiate that imagery, what you should do is have a playful or wishful image, like lying on a boat or running through the woods with your dog, you know, whatever feels playful or wishful to you, and that will then allow you to swivel your attention inwards and will allow your mind to wander.
1: Srini Pillay is our guest on today's Please Explain. He's a practicing psychiatrist, brain imaging researcher, a brain-based technology innovator, currently at Harvard Medical School, also an invited faculty member in the executive education program at Harvard Business School and Duke Corporate Education. His book, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, is published by Ballantine Books. We're going to take a little break, and we'll come back with more and take more of your calls right after this. And we are back with today's Please Explain with Srini Pillay, who's written a book called Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind. It's from Ballantine Books. Doodle. Doodling is good. It got me in a lot of trouble when I was in college when I doodled and I
2: wasn't listening to what the teacher was saying. I think you and a lot of other people. Um, so, yeah, I, I think teachers often will say things like pay attention, stop being distracted. Uh, but, but a study by Jackie Andrade and colleagues actually took two groups of people while they were listening to a telephone message, and they had to remember eight names in eight places – and what they found was that the group that doodled compared to the group that did not doodle uh, had memory that was – they remember 29 percent more than, than the group that did not doodle, suggesting that when you doodle, your mind is in a state a little bit more like a relaxed sponge able to absorb information um, rather than when you're not doodling and overfocusing where your mind becomes stiffer and unable to absorb information.
1: A listener wonders if one's senses can be so overexposed to stimuli like lights in a supermarket or to sound that one's other senses suffer and shut down.
2: Yes, absolutely. I I think that that's a very individual um, thing because different people have different levels of tolerance. Uh, But the brain is a resource-constrained organ, meaning it can't just take things endlessly. And I think learning how to shut down from time to time makes a big difference and can actually even improve your tolerance of stimuli like that. What about the, uh, the old idea of left brain, right brain?
1: Does that still apply? Um, whether whether no, we're are analytical or creative, depending
2: on which side of our brain becomes more important in the way we think? No, actually. uh, Recently, more and more, uh, that's being debunked. And I think most people are finding that you need both sides of your brain in order to be creative. Uh, And that actually, rather than left and right brain, we're now talking about focused and unfocused circuits. Because when you're unfocused, you're unfocused enough to explore ideas and gather new thoughts. But then at some point, you've got to bring these together for the final moment of creativity. Uh, And so left and right doesn't really apply because without the left brain... You wouldn't be able to bring all of this stuff together.
1: What do you think people misunderstand about motivation and about the reasons we sometimes suffer from
2: what feels like a lack of
1: motivation?
2: Well, people often think that motivation is some kind of drive and that you've got to act, that it starts with your goal and that your goal should pull you toward it. But that's really exhausting. Motivation is something that can also be inspired, it can result due to a, a state of inspiration which comes from a state that, of, of creativity which comes from stimulating your unfocused circuits. So motivation is not something that necessarily requires effort all the time. It requires turning on both your focus and unfocused circuits. And really what I'm talking about there is intrinsic motivation, and I think a lot of people want that inner sense of drive rather than having to feel like somebody's dangling a carrot in front of them and they've got to respond.
1: Let's take some more calls. Our number is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at org, or on Facebook or Twitter. Where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Lots of people are calling in. Kevin from Bridgeport, you're on the air.
4: Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I'm a musician, and I can totally relate to what you're talking about in terms of... Um, Especially when I'm writing songs and being creative. It's usually when uh, I'm not thinking about something and it will come to me and then I have to telling the screener that I uh, you really have to not be aware of what you're or not like be critical of it. You just let it come out because if I start thinking, Oh, geez, this melody sounds like this song or that lyric sounds like that then I'll stop myself in it. So I just try to ride the wave, go with the flow and get it as much as I can down and then later go back and you know, work on
1: it and be critical, or use my analytical mind on it. Um, and, b- and by the you know, way, Kevin, uh, there's a major exhibit of Ellsworth Kelly's paintings here in New York. And he said that a major breakthrough for him when he was young and just starting to work was that if he had an idea, he wasn't going to re- he wasn't going to start being critical of it. He was going to accept it, go with it, and then if it didn't work out, that's okay. But uh, if he just kept on being following what he had been taught in art school he wouldn't have gone anywhere
4: that's so true because all of a sudden all the rules oh you know no parallel this this that or the other or this mm-hmm. sounds like that or i, I you know you you hear your influences and it's just really you got to kind of let go of all of that i used to find that writing lyrics I still do is if I'm driving a car, I don't know if that's alpha state, beta state, whatever, but when you're, side of, you're sort of preoccupied with something else or mowing the lawn or vacuuming, you know, your mind is sort of on one thing and you kind of just let that daydreamy kind of other part of your mind go and that, that unfocused part, which is what you're talking about. So uh, I also think uh, uh, you you made a reference to musicians playing in an orchestra and being aware um, and connecting. And uh, I'm I play four or five nights a week and uh, you, you're totally, you're listening and you're playing your part, but you're listening to what the other musician's mm. doing and you're reacting to it. So, you, you know, you're keeping the structure of the song, you're following whatever it is you're doing, but you're, especially when you're improvising or the other musicians are improvising, you have to really, you know, be in the in the zone. And it's kind of letting go and not thinking about it, but being there at the same
2: time. Srini? So. Absolutely. I'm a musician as well, so I strongly relate to this. And in the book, give examples of other artists like Duke Ellington, um, and, and Picasso, and I think uh, most artists would, ag- would agree with what you're saying, that you, you do have this focused time, but I think what you're talking about is ingenuity, and my, my opinion on this is that in society, uh, we, we rely too much on education and not enough on ingenuity, and I think that lots of people have a deep intelligence that may or may not be related to their educations, and to the extent that we can activate this intelligence, we should, and the way you do this is often with unfocus. You talk about symbol symbolization. What is that? So it's essentially sort of taking a complex construct and trying to figure it out in a different way. Sometimes it's hard to actually just focus on a problem And try to figure out, for example, you know, where should I move the furniture around in this room? You know, you end up doing it five million times. Uh, But if you just sort of use a symbol, a circle or a square for different things, and you simplify it on a piece of paper, you unfocus from the problem at hand and do it symbolically, your brain is often able to manipulate symbols like circles and squares rather than big dressers or complex pieces of furniture. And so I would say that sometimes when you're stuck, rather than looking at the situation itself, draw a little diagram on a piece of paper and see how differently your brain will work in that state.
1: Larry from Levittown, you're on the air.
5: Yes, uh, I have a, uh, something I think that pertains to what you're talking about. Uh, I was uh, an operating engineer for 30 years. i retired now with a crane operator in the city. And I found that um, after a few years that we worked We might work at a job for a month and then uh, another job for a month and another job for a year, whatever it was. And usually when I got, most guys, when they get on a new job and they get on a new machine, there's a nervousness. They're not used to the job. They're not used to the machine. And a lot of guys get to the point where they become very nervous about the next day or, you know, we're going to be able to handle the job. And I got to a point in my life where I realized since I had experience Uh, That when I got on a new machine, what I did basically, and you have a learning curve and it's kind of difficult. You have men working under you, so it's dangerous and so forth and so on. That if I went home and simply didn't think about it and went to bed, I found that uh, somehow or other while I'm sleeping, my mind is able to uh, draw from experience I've had and, and be able to work things out. And I found that when I went in the next day and got on the machine... I was almost perfectly comfortable with the job. And I always felt that when I slept at night, somehow or other, my brain figures the situation out without me even trying.
2: Srini? Absolutely, I think a lot of studies show that when you are sleeping, uh, when you are dreaming, often when you are in a REM state, Um, your brain can actively reorganize information and provide solutions that the awake mind cannot provide. And that's partly because when you're awake, your brain can't often deal with contradictions. Uh, But when you're asleep, your brain can leap over walls of thinking that it cannot do when you're awake. So uh, absolutely, I think the research supports your experience. I'm
1: speaking with Dr. Srini Pillay, who is our guest on today's Please Explain. His book, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind, and let's go to another call. Peter from Glen Ridge, New Jersey. You're on the air.
4: Thank you for not taking somebody else's call. Ah. You've never heard that, huh? Okay. Unlocking my mind. I Now,
1: with another musician comparison, that's what I was going to talk about, because I was talking to students who were going to take their finals at Columbia University, and I thought of this metaphor, like, after you've done all the studying, like, when you're taking the exam think of yourself as a conductor the conductor doesn't know how to how to play the cello he doesn't need to know how to play the bassoon but he needs to
4: be there to bring it together is that a useful metaphor for this creative mind just to be there to bring it together without having to know about
1: specific how do you finger that note or whatever like the conductor doesn't he just needs to be there to, to unlock it does that make any sense
2: Absolutely. So my my feeling is that I think it's great that you're encouraging them to Adopt another state of mind. I think that the conductor metaphor could work for a lot of people. I would say that asking them to think about a metaphor of their own that's like that example would probably be helpful. And one of the studies that supports this is a study that showed that when people were trying to solve a creative problem, when they took on the identity of an eccentric poet, they were actually better able to solve that problem than if they imagined themselves as a rigid librarian. And mm-hmm. the same people, when they changed their roles, were actually able to be more creative. I call this psychological Halloweenism, and I think adopting the identity of someone else is a great strategy when you're trying to be more creative. Gregory from Harlem, Hi, you're on the air
4: hi there good, good afternoon uh, oh man, this is this is a very, very good question for me because i i'm I'm really concerned I've been a creative guy all my life or been told I've been creative and is is what a doctor positing that you can actually create? creativity?
1: Can you teach creativity, I guess, is the question. Yeah, that, yeah,
4: there you go.
1: And uh, yes. are you,
2: can uh, you say yes? Yes. I, I, I can say that for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because there are studies that indicate that that, that can be taught. So there are studies that indicate, for example, that musicians can learn to follow conductors and become more creative. I think most experts would say that probably not more than 10% of creativity is inherited, that creativity can be taught if you teach people how to use their brains more effectively.
1: There's a mantra among entrepreneurs and people in the tech industry to fail
2: fast and to be almost proud of failure. What do you think about that cultural shift? I think that that's a, that's a great shift as long as you can tolerate that that feeling. And I think for different people, that's different. So while I think it's, it's helpful to know that, that you need to fail fast, it's also helpful to figure out how you can actually use your agile brain to get back on your feet. And so the brain has what I call a spring coil mechanism that I outline in the book. And I won't go through all of the details, but what I'll say is there are specific questions that you can ask yourself uh, in order to get your brain back on board. So one example is, uh, you know, sometimes our brains over-dramatize things, and we can't tell if it's too much drama or if it's really important. So asking yourself, did the feedback that I just get, was that too much drama or was that actually important, can be helpful. And that's, you know, that's one kind of thing. The other thing is when we co- sometimes we can implement feedback control, and we can recognize that when we're trying to recover, taking too much feedback can actually sort of overfill the brain. So you want to figure out which feedback is helpful, which feedback is not, and at which point do you need to turn to ingenuity. So I think that fail fast is great, but I think what you really need to know is how to activate those spring coils, uh, those spring coils in the brain to become resilient again. How does stress
1: influence our creativity and productivity?
2: Well, stress activates habit pathways in the brain. Um, And stress can also decrease your capacity to imagine. Uh, And it can also fatigue your brain more so that your brain is not able to actually do anything. So stress can have a profound effect on creativity. Like most other psychological phenomena, a certain amount of stress can actually be helpful. But after you reach a critical point, uh, you actually get, you, you, you don't get the benefits that you want. Uh, and so I would say that, that there's a kind of stress called eustress, EU stress, which is helpful. Uh, but once it gets to distress, it's not helpful at all.
1: A listener, Emily, called in to ask if you've done research on children or
2: people with ADHD and their distractibility. Yes. So there have been a lot of studies that show that children with ADHD can actually be more creative. Um, And what we know is that many forms of unfocused activity can be helpful. So for example, Jacques Panksepp uh, and his colleagues have looked at the effects of rough and tumble play amongst children and found that children who are engaged in rough and tumble play rather than just passive activities are actually more creative. So there's a lot of evidence to show that you can leverage this inattention to enhance creativity.
1: And dyslexia often... uh leads to creativity. There are any number of well-known artists who say they're dyslexic.
2: Absolutely. And, and I think, in fact, you know, when you think about spelling, and I outlined this in the book as well, uh, in, the, like in, in some instances, spelling matters. But in many instances, the brain really just requires the first and last letter of a word. And if the, if the in-between is jumbled, the brain can actually put that together again. And so what I would say is no matter what the limitation is, acknowledge the limitation, but never let the limitation be defining of who you are. Denise from Eatontown, New Jersey. You're on the air.
3: Hi. Um, I have a question. I have a nephew who's 15 years old, and he has a lot of fear and anxiety, which to the point where he can't even function. Um, He's actually homeschooled right now, just starting that. And I was wondering if you have any... Um, helpful hints for somebody in his position, Um, you know, as far as not focusing so much, because I think that's a big part of his problem is focusing so extremely on the task he's doing at the time that he's not able to complete the task.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think, firstly, just from an overall perspective, I think it's important to assess the nature of that, uh, whether it needs professional help or not. But if you're, if it's at the point where you think you can intervene at home, there's a mnemonic he, that getting, I offer. He's
3: getting professional help, but just as an aunt, when sure. I go to visit him and I go to see him, or just anything that might be helpful just from
2: – yes. Absolutely. uh, Yeah. uh, So there's a mnemonic that I think can be helpful, and I'll quickly go through it. The mnemonic is CIRCA, which is C-I-R-C-A. The first C is for chunking. So if he has a big problem, you can teach him to break this down into small parts so that he's not overwhelmed. The I is for ignore mental chatter, which is essentially teaching him mindfulness, and mindfulness in kids has actually been found to be really helpful. The R is for reality check which is teaching him self-talk in the form of this too shall pass when he has any major negative thing happen. And then there's control check, which is teaching him what he can or can't control. And then the last A is for attention shift, which is teaching him to shift his attention, which is like a flashlight from the problem to the solution. And all five of these techniques have been shown to move brain blood flow from the brain's anxiety center, the amygdala, back to the thinking brain. Can you talk
1: a bit more about self-talk? And how that affects our creative performance?
2: Sure. So self talk is a is, is a form of, of is a way in which you can actually change brain blood flow, and by using self talk, uh, you can actually get yourself to perform at a much higher level. There are a couple of basic principles that you can remember to help yourself talk more effectively. I think the first thing is to remember that when you're trying to help yourself, uh, saying using the word no can can actually have the the exact opposite effect, like I do not want to lose my temper, or I don't want to lose control. Um, Under stress, the brain does the exact opposite of what you want it to do. Mm -hmm. So frame your goals in the positive. The second thing is, if you find yourself distressed, label that emotion, because labeling the emotion drives blood away from the anxiety center in the brain, back to the thinking brain. And the third thing is when you're talking to yourself, talk to yourself in the second person. So if you're trying to figure out how to change your game creatively, for example, uh, and if it were a tennis player like Roger Federer, rather than saying, I'm going to crush this, he would say, Roger, you're going to crush this. And by using your name and speaking in the second person, Ethan Cross and his colleagues have found that that's a much more effective way to use self-talk.
1: We have a lot of politicians who speak about themselves in the second or third. Uh, So – uh, I, I Not all of them are admirable, but that's a whole other issue. Many times we're just overwhelmed with demands or even just overwhelmed with competing thoughts, which makes it hard to focus. So what do you recommend for how people should deal with that?
2: I would recommend that you structure your day so that at the major points of slumps, you implement one of these unfocused techniques. For a lot of people, it's mid-morning, after lunch, or mid-afternoon. Build in one of these techniques like doodling, positive constructive daydreaming, reframing, possibility thinking, going for a walk. Any one of these things can help your unfocused circuits come back on and recharge and revitalize your brain.
1: You know, I want to thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, This has been a fascinating conversation. uh, And uh, my guest has been Srini Pillay, P-I-L-L-A-Y. His latest book is Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try unlock the power of the unfocused mind it is published by Ballantine books and uh, i'm assuming there's another book in the works
2: i think so there's always another one in the works because the moment you finish with one there's there's another idea so i'm I'm excited to be on the show and i really hope that people uh, are able to implement some of these things in their lives
1: and i'm looking forward to speaking to you in the future
2: i would love that too